Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and today we get to talk about Loki's magical stick. <laughs> today we're talking about Minute 56, which begins with big science talk and ends with the Helicaria at night. Back on the show, it's Bubba Wheat from the It's Time to Rewind podcast. Hello, Bubba Wheat. Hey, it's good to be back. We are thrilled to have you back. This uh, next set of minutes, we're going to have you for uh, 56 through 59. Uh, so a nice, a nice solid chunk. What was the particular reason that you selected this chunk of minutes? Well, I, I selected them for a couple different reasons. I, I think the main reason why I picked this chunk was... Whenever I was kind of flipping through the Avengers, I, I haven't seen it since, I think, 2012, maybe 2013. And uh, so I I remember enjoying it as a whole, but I couldn't pick out any specific points other than, you know, some of the, you know, very brief moments uh, of the highlights. And then I remember that this moment with the, the Galaga and... So I picked that because, you know, for my day job, I do work at an arcade and I have worked in the arcade <laughs> business for awesome. you know, about 20 years now. So I, I thought that was nice. And then I, I gave you a chunk of minutes just because as somebody who's done this myself, I know the headache of the additional scheduling. So for your benefit and mine, I was like, I'll just pick... <laughs> You know, a nice solid chunk of minutes, even though they said I could split it up. And then I do have one other minute. Uh, right. You know, I, I guess, spoiler, I, I picked the, the Stanley cameo. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, um, well, that's so thoughtful of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so thoughtful. <laughs> As, uh, you know, behind the scenes, it definitely does require a little more work on the scheduling side to to be running the show this way. Although it is allowing for a lot of interesting conversations. So um, sometimes confusing conversations as we record sometimes minutes out of order. But you know what? It's okay. It's all <laughs> part of the fun. It's all part of the fun. Yeah, I'm, I've, I just um, in the middle of, of recording a season where it's, I, I think our sessions have almost have wildly been out of order. Oh, yeah. Is, that's the, um, the memento? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we... Uh, uh, had a lot of fun talking with you on that one, so definitely looking forward to hearing the rest of the show. Well, we're coming in uh, to this conference uh, table as the group is talking. Tony had just arrived, uh, you know, a little over a minute ago, and he and Bruce start kind of having this little um, uh, nerd talk. They really kind of go into this heavy science conversation no one else is understanding what they're talking about. You know, you know, in the last minute, Banner had talked about heating the cube up to 120 million Kelvin, and he finishes here just to break through the Kulum barrier. And then Tony replies about the quantum tunneling effect, and then Banner brings up the heavy ion fusion. And it's, uh, it's a very funny little bit of science here that is actually pretty accurate. I thought that was kind of fun to do some research on this minute about all this. How does this play for the two of you as far as like the, the developing relationship between our two scientists here? I like it because I, I think with different actors, it could come off as um, almost, you know, a, a Johnson measuring contest. But I, I feel <laughs> like that with the two of these, these guys, it, it feels like they, like there, there's no, um, hints of 
I mean, superiority to everybody else, but they, it's not like they're trying to one up each other. I, I feel like they feel like each other are at the same level and they, they feel like that's especially Tony Stark as someone that doesn't experience that very often because he feels like everybody's below him. And so talking to someone who he feels like is an intellectual equal is a nice change of pace. And, and I feel like it, the, the friend, it is truly like this uh, camaraderie that he's trying to build. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's the uh, uh, finally someone who speaks English bit. I think that's really great. And, uh, it, but it gives us this toss, the banter between them to toss back and forth between science talk and human talk. I get that reference. Like that's a callback to a great joke and it's a joke that will continue to pay dividends. And, uh, and I, I just, I love it to, to watch all of the personalities and egos kind of normalize around this table. I think it, it makes for a really neat scene. Yeah, it really does. Going into the science a little bit, I just wanted to, uh, translate this i found this uh on this website um uh, neuronium on tumblr on the neocortical element they did this whole write-up about this whole thing about the tesseract and being used the way that they're describing here and it kind of breaks down a little bit of this whole thing which is it was really interesting to read the way that it's all described here in this whole process of nuclear uh fusion and uh, the Kalum barrier, it really kind of goes into all that. The Kalum barrier, there's a Kalum force that keeps charged nuclei from getting close enough to each other to collide and fuse together. And so they have to get through the barrier in order to, to do that. And that creates that nuclear, nuclear fusion. And so this, this article kind of breaks down the whole thing. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing because it's, it's, uh, there's quite a bit, but just, I'm going to read this last paragraph here because I think it, it highlights it pretty well. To return to Selvig's plan, he needs to heat the cube up to 120 mil- million Kelvin to break through the Kalum barrier needed to fuse the nuclei of atoms inside the cube and generate energy to activate the Tesseract. Bruce Banner and Tony Stark figure that only a small number of nuclear reactors are able to carry out a nuclear reaction that requires that much amount of heat and initial energy, such as one of Stark Industries. This became an advantage in narrowing down the possible locations of the Tesseract, in addition to Banner's approach by tracing its electromagnetic radiation. The exception to this rule would be if Selvig is able to coax particles inside the cube to undergo the quantum tunneling process, which means that the fusion process could happen in lower temperatures and can be carried out in more common nuclear reactors. Even reading that sounds... But Dr. Nelson, Dr. Nelson, how does that apply to me? Will I ever break the Kulum barrier? I mean, I I don't know all about that, but I did read an article and and I found it again uh, just this past December. uh, For the first time in the U.S., they they had a nuclear fusion reactor core that produces more energy than it consumes, which is a, you know, a massive breakthrough in nuclear fusion because uh, up to this point typically the the energy required to get to that you know million kelvin takes more energy than they create from the nuclear uh, fusion reaction the the article was december 13th of just this past year and uh, that that was the first time that they did that because they're they're using you know different techniques in um in terms of like insulation in order to 
keep the heat from leaking out, basically. Yeah, and it's interesting because they also have not quite figured out how to do it for a longer period. Like, I think when they did that, they could only sustain it for about 20 seconds or so. So they still have a ways to go, but at least they're advancing. And that's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of exciting to see how how the process uh, continues to evolve. Yeah. And all of this science, uh, pretty soon we'll just, we'll all have our own little tesseract sitting in our kitchen and we'll (laughs) be able to use it to run the dishwasher. Dare to dream. <laughs> well, okay. So the other thing that uh, that Bruce says, or that Tony says to Bruce, is um, after they've met, your work on anti-electron collisions is unparalleled, which is more science. And I'm not going to get into this one, but it deals with uh, the process of annihilation, which I just liked that. That's actually the process name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, de- it deals with <laughs> subatomic particle collisions. And I'm like, of course it's called annihilation, because that just <laughs> sounds so perfect. That's what they do. That's and what not, they do. Not creepy bears with human voices. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what all of this is, though, I mean, it is really this great meet-cute between these two scientists. And it's it's really fun. <laughs> And that's an awesome way to put it. That's exactly what it is to scientists meet cute. Well done. (laughs) Oh, my God. And what what is great about it is after they have this moment and they bond, then Steve is like, is that what just happened? Like, you can tell, like, their talk is like so far (laughs) above everyone else. It's pretty clever. It's pretty fun. And also, I think the other thing that we get out of this, though, is that there's a meet cue, but at the same time, Tony is going to be pushing at Bruce quite a bit here. And the first thing he says, I'm a huge fan of the way you lose control and turn into an enormous green rage monster. And we're going to kind of see how that kind of continues as he continues poking, sometimes literally, and prodding at Bruce to try to kind of get a rise out of him. And and to get a read on him, he'll say later, you know, strutting versus tiptoeing and all of that. And it's interesting that this, like right out of the gate, he is fascinated by the other side of Bruce that he's not going to get to see for a while. But I think it's an interesting way that he plays this. And I'm curious from the two of you, you know, where do you read Tony's desire to kind of continue needling and pushing at Bruce? Um, because, you know, as, as Tony will say later, it's like, you know, you're putting everyone in this ship at risk. I mean, do you think that, I mean, how do you think Tony sees this? Well, I think it it's really his egotistical and and reckless scientific curiosity you know he doesn't he is curious for curious sake and he he thinks that he personally can handle it and he doesn't care about whether or not anybody else can handle the situation i i I don't know i mean i think there is there's probably a part of him that is that understands that there is risk uh involved with his needling i don't think he can help it like he just feels like a guy who cannot resist the urge to poke, right? That's all we've seen him do is poke at stuff and then have Jarvis build a robot that addresses that poking. Like, this is his stock and trade. It's all he does. Yeah. It's like putting a kid in the room with a uh, a sign that says, do not press this button. <laughs> Tony is a walking, talking example of a perpetual failure of the marshmallow test, right? <laughs> That's what he is. Always failing the marshmallow test. Always. 
I, I do like the way that it plays, and I, I think it is interesting. I think it does say a lot about his personality, and uh, you know, we'll be we'll be talking about that quite a bit over the next week or so. Yeah. I do want to point out Colson did not leave. I thought it was strange in uh, a couple minutes ago when Tony and Colson arrive and Tony jumps into the conversation and Colson just walks out of frame and completely seemed to disappear from the scene. I'm like, I guess he left. Well, no, in fact, he's actually just standing on the far side of the room now. He's just uh, he's just back there listening, not really involved in the conversation. He's so shifty. He's like standing back there with papers. It's like he has been dodging eyeline of the camera the whole time like he's been there like on his knees crawling around that's what i imagine clark greg doing on set <laughs> well i didn't quite go there but sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just got up right before we see him at about second 17 he had just stood up after collecting all the papers that he accidentally dropped over there <laughs> that's that's what he's doing all right uh, and Fury finally shows up. Uh, I did joke a few minutes ago at this uh, table about like, why shouldn't Fury be here? It seems like a conversation Fury should be involved in, completely forgetting the fact that he was uh, just at Loki's cell and is still kind of probably moving from Loki's cell back up to here as everybody is having this conversation. So, uh, so he finally arrives, though. And, you know, this is kind of the moment where we're really getting all of these people working together, having this conversation about trying to figure out what's going on about the cube and uh, what their next steps are. And then we have Steve piping in with, I'd start with that stick of his, which does that seem like verbiage that, that Steve would say? Does it seem very, very... Uh, I think it does. does like it? I could totally see him in, in, you know, 1940 saying, hey, everybody, get the stick. Doesn't it seem like, well, I, that's, of course, not what Tom, what he sounded like in 1945. <laughs> yeah, sure. it, Where are you it, going it, there? Hey, you, hey. <laughs> hey, buckaroo. He's turned into Grab a 30s the, news, news, uh, newsreel voice. <laughs> Grab the alien stick. <laughs> it just feels like a stick. It feels like a, feels like a word that, that, like, what other word does he have? It's like what you used to play stickball with it. Yeah, exactly. And because I'll tell you what is not a word that fits for Steve, like, it just substitutes scepter. In that line. <laughs> and does that make it better? I don't know. For somebody whose brain has grown and is supposed to be like so cl clever and smart now, like when he just says, I'd start with that stick of his, it doesn't, I don't know, from my perspective, it sounds, it sounds like a lot more dismissively or, or purposefully dismissive or naive about it. Like it's just, it sounds strange as, you know, using talking about your your enemy to be talking about it that way. I don't know. It just it struck me as peculiar. But maybe I'm just wanting to read more into it than I really should be. <laughs> well, I don't I don't want you to feel bad, man. But I think you might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think that stick would be better than you know spear or scepter, like Pete said, yeah, right. coming out of Captain America's mouth. Maybe uh, maybe I could see him saying weapon instead. But uh, I think. I think stick is a decent choice. All right, yeah. fine. <laughs> you two can have this one. <laughs> um, but we do get this comment from him that it works an awful lot like a hydro weapon. Um, this is coming from a person who has seen hydro weapons. He was shot at with the scepter by Loki in Stuttgart. It very much kind of has the blue pew pew powers and... I don't know. I guess I wanted to chat with you both. How does this work for you? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit before because obviously 
he's been doing this since pretty much the beginning of the film. But now we, you know, very specifically have a call out to the last film and uh, the, the Tesseract energy, which is space stone energy being used in a way that shoots with those weapons. But now it's the Mind Stone energy, which is essentially also blue pew pew energy. Do you like the way this works? I think they say it in this this minute. Nick says, uh, Nick Fury says that it's powered by the Tesseract. So if that is true, then you could argue that it's the Mind Stone being powered up by the Tesseract, and so that's so that's why it basically has the the blue Tesseract energy coding. And that's why it's it's shooting the tesseract energy instead of behaving more like the mind stone, and the 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 tesseract energy just allows it to do extra mind thing. Like Loki knows its true power, and so he can use the mind stone in the center of it on occasion to to mind control the 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 people to work for him. But it's for the most part, it's covered in the the blue tesseract energy to use as, you know, a, a more typical weapon. I have to just say, for the record, may it please the court, I love that we have canonized the blue pew-pew energy. Like, that just <laughs> rolled off your tongue so effortlessly. I I live for that. I don't... Uh, I, I, <laughs> there's I one don't thing what, that we love to get out of that. Yes, the canonization the blue of pew pew <laughs> energy. Yes, that is what that is what they have made of the confusion between the mind stone and the tesseract. Um, so you may you may go from there. <laughs> it's I I I struggle with it. I also I mean I'm, I'm glad you brought up that other line, uh, Bubba Weed, about uh, that Fury says that. Uh, it's powered by the cube because I was like, ah, it, it feels like a very written line, a very kind of misleading line that they needed to throw in here just to kind of keep us not thinking about it. And, and perhaps also to future retroactively cover up the fact that it's not actually <laughs> involved with the Tesseract at all, but is a totally different infinity stone. Uh, well, then, and that know. also sets up the, the the finale, like how they you know solve this problem, right? Uh, it just, but all of it, it just it it feels so speculative on their part. Like, like how how does he know that it's powered by the cube? Like all of this seems a little because <laughs> it's blue. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. It's <laughs> like uh, any anything that's blue. Oh my goodness, that just uh, leads to all sorts of problems. But but yeah, I mean, I guess maybe that is the way that he's reading it. It just it all of this ends up feeling a little too written for me, just to kind of keep the story moving. Or because they they both they both have the um, you know the the subtle gamma uh, radiation that's banners able to trace right which we don't know yet we we only know that uh at this point that the tesseract has gamma radiation we won't find out that the scepter does until a few minutes from now when uh, bruce and tony are off studying it up in the lab but i mean yes absolutely there is that commonality that we will learn about so i mean yeah they're, they're figuring this stuff out i just i guess i struggle a little bit about the way that the scene is constructed I think that's, I mean, I think that's a really good observation. And it's a challenge with these kinds of movies. And and as we record this, right, we're on the day that New York Times film critic A.O. Scott retires from film criticism because he's tired of franchises. Like, it, it, that it, it, 
all of his arguments about why movies suck today, and he's not going to review them anymore for the Times, they they come right back into this, like into this sort of we can't write sophisticated stories anymore that tell complex sciencey future stuff without it feeling written. And I wonder, and and I, I should say, I'm I'm obviously I'm a bull on this movie. I have a great time with the movie. I wonder if writing less would actually communicate more, right? They write so much sciencey language that gives you gives us, I feel like, too many opportunities to question when really being a little bit more hand wavy about it might actually serve the story better. Hypothesis. Uh that's possible. I I also just think that they probably could have found ways to make this story work without having to have jumped through as many hoops as they did to create this connection, to create the the scepter that's also blue that eventually won't be blue. Uh, you know, it just, it seems well, like kind of what I mean, right? Like it's overcomplicated. Yeah. It, it, I guess if that's what you're saying, yeah, I feel like then there probably is some sense of overcomplication in the way that they crafted this, um, just to have these tools here. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, the team behind this, there are certainly people who could, I mean, we know they can put together complicated stories. I just wonder if it was if it was at this point where they're like, you know what, I think that's going to be fine. Let's just go with that. And I mean, you know, it's not like everyone has all the time in the world to come up with these things. Eventually, they have to, right. you know, uh, put the camera down and start filming. So, Well, and as we keep running into with this movie, it's not as if everyone expects an audience of podcasters to litigate every line in the script one minute at a time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and to a certain extent, I mean, obviously, we're, we're here, to, we're having fun, you know, having these conversations about all of this. And yeah, I mean, the, the point of a film is to not watch it one minute at a time and break it down, but to watch it in one fell swoop, and just kind of let it flow over you. But I don't know, personally, oftentimes, these are questions that you end up talking about afterward. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's, I guess, what, you know, where, what I'm getting to is like, th- some of these issues just, I, it's hard to let go of them, because they, they kind of are perpetual issues. Perpetual and central to what gets us into the next sequence, like this perpetuates the chase, right? I mean, this is what leads us into the next thing. And, uh, I, you know, so it's, it's important to the degree to which you can step away from it and, ha- and believe it so that you believe the action to come. And, and for me, it, it works, but, uh, but I can totally see how it might stop you. Yeah, right, right. Well, we go from uh, this conversation about the Hydra weapon and being powered by the cube and all that and uh, and talking about the mind control, which is, uh, you know, getting this sense from Fury about how Loki used it to turn two of uh, the sharpest men that he knows into his personal flying monkeys. That's a fun little reference, uh, Wizard of Oz, in here that he throws out. And Thor, of course, has no idea, but Steve does. Steve <laughs> gets it. <laughs> it's it. This is a really fun beat and pete you had mentioned the other point when when this was this was calling back to right well just that this is a this is a a fun thing that we know about steve that this is an element for him to feel like he's catching up to the present and i think it that i think works like we get multiple beats across the franchise i think of him getting stuff and understanding and feeling like he's catching up and i like that and and i also think that there is this little bit of um uh, understanding between Steve and Thor, because like Steve sees Thor 
looking around like he doesn't understand what the reference is. And I'm sure Steve has felt that exact same way many times throughout these past, uh, what, six months, did you say? Uh, that he's yeah, been seven, not frozen? Seven months, yeah. Yep. Seven months? Seven, yeah. So I, I think he sees Thor looking around and he's like, I know exactly how he feels, but I, hey, I, I know the reference. I know the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> That's a good point. If if Fury, on the other hand, had said uh, turned into his personal flying build snipes, then <laughs> that would have been right up Thor's alley. <laughs> uh, also, I happen to know that build snipe is now your spirit animal. So I think that we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> we've come a long way. <laughs> the other thing about this moment is when Steve says he gets that reference. Tony has like the best eye roll. Like it is so funny to see his reaction to Steve because it is just it's so dismissive of like oh god this guy. It's it's such a funny way that they're painting his impressions of Captain America like like he is so dated, he is so of my dad's era and there's nothing cool about him. It I don't know, it really makes me laugh the way that they're playing this relationship or the way that Tony's reading it. I mean, how do you two see this? It really is, Tony. Just like, okay, uh, good on you, old man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It. Well, and it's it's yet another reference. Like as we as we think about Tony and his relationship with his dad, like it's you you kind of can't let that go. This is the guy my dad couldn't shut up about. Like we we have Tony feeling resentful about him. He just met the guy, right? I mean, he just really just a few minutes ago it feels like just met the guy and um and now he's he's already you know dealing with him i think yeah. it's great yeah as uh tony and bruce uh <laughs> after that little bit they they decide to go play and uh they they walk out that's the end of the scene but we do get a cutaway to galaga guy and we <laughs> see that he is uh now that tony has left he goes back to his computer and he switches his screen back to play a little more Galaga. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just fantastic. Which I, I love this on, on several different levels on, on one, I believe I read that the Galaga line was a one-off and you can kind of tell that this was probably a pickup shot because there are no, uh, primary actors in, in the scene. Right. It really is just the close up, right. the, the extra, uh, switching to Galaga, so it, it does feel like something that they could have added in afterwards to to fit with the line, which could have been an improvisation from uh, Robert Downey Jr. And this also ties into a little bit of my own personal Mandela effect because whenever you, whenever I knew you guys were going to do the Avengers, I remember hearing on a podcast with someone that's within my podcast circle. Who, told, who tells this story about how he was the extra standing next to the, like how he was an extra in this scene and how he was um, next to the guy playing Galaga. So it was like kind of a, a prime spot, like not on camera because you don't see the guy stand, sitting next to the guy playing Galaga. But um, that would be like prime to experience the filming of it. And I could have sworn in my head that it was this one person that I knew. And I reached out to him and he's like, 
and he messaged me back and he's like, no, that, that wasn't me. I, I would have loved <laughs> to have been there, but that was not me. And like, I was trying to rack my head and like, I, I reached out to a, a few other people in my podcast circles and, and none of them remembered this story. So I, I, I cannot find it anywhere. I have no idea if this is just a, a story that I completely imagined or if it is a real story, but I just could not find the person that I heard this story from. So that's funny. That's but, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, since we're here at, uh, at Galaga and it's uh, close to the end of the minute. Um, well, this was the reason you picked it. Is there something about Galaga in particular? Are you a fan of Galaga? Where does that fall in your, in your roster of video game fandom? Um, I, I mean, Galaga, it's, it's always, I think it's still one of the, you know, t- the, the top three or top five classic video games of all time. It's right up there with like, uh, Miss Pac-Man and, uh, like Space Invaders and Frogger. And so they, they, the arcades do still make, uh, new versions of it. Like in, in one of the arcades that I work now, we have a current, uh, arcade cabinet of Galaga, which is, you know, it's slightly updated graphics. Like it, it's still got the pixelated version, but it's, it's a bit more sleek and the background looks a bit nicer. And I, I think, you know, the motion is a bit smoother and, you know, like the aliens, they, uh, they'll have some 3d motion to them. Like their, their animations are a bit more fluid and smoother and more fleshed out and it's you know it it gives tickets and and then and you only just like play two levels instead of you know playing for as long as you can so it's it it shortens it up but uh yeah it's it's one of those games that's that's still around and it it's still fun to play i mean it's it's a classic it's simple but it's there's enough complexity to it that's uh that you don't necessarily get tired of it that quickly. I, I just was trying to look up, like, what's the uh, what's the highest score of Galaga that we've been to? And it looks like it's been over t- almost 21 million uh, points as far as the highest score, <laughs> which is uh, which is crazy to me that it's uh, so many, especially because, you know, our our Galaga guy here right now only has 36,450. So he's a ways, <laughs> ways away. Did you? I can't remember, Andy. Were you a big Gal, uh, Galaga guy yourself? I yeah, Galaga. I always enjoyed. I always think that I preferred Space Invaders because it was just um, you know just the the slower pace of the aliens coming down at me was <laughs> didn't, didn't uh, <laughs> made it a little uh, easier. But I enjoyed both of them. They were both fun games. I it, it's funny. Like it it feels like Space Invaders and Galaga were like worlds apart, but they were only a couple of years. Like Galaga made some incredible improvements over Space Invaders and like Galaxian, but only like two years apart. That it's uh, kind of you know you think about the pace of innovation in games that it was non trivial. And I, I for me I was like a centipede guy. Oh, like, yeah. I loved centipede and uh, and also you know I'm I'm a Joust kid too. I played a lot of Joust and. And I can't, I, what was the one with, where you, it was a four player, uh, you were like, um, it was kind of a D&D game, four player on the console. Oh, uh, Gauntlet. Yeah, Gauntlet. Gauntlet. Yeah. Oh, God, I loved Gauntlet. Warrior needs food badly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That was another one that they remade in, in like the, the nineties or two thousands, the, the gauntlets, uh, legacy. It was like oh. the 3d version. Oh, it feels like I should find you. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fun. Well, before we anyway. wrap up, I wanted to do the IMDb game with the two of you with, uh, Warren Cole, who plays our carrier bridge tech. He is the Galaga guy. <laughs> uh, Warren Cole, surprisingly though, fairly robust uh, acting career. This is, I, I would almost, uh, at this point in his career, I don't know if it would be fair to call it a, a cameo, but, it, or just like a fun part. Maybe he knew some of the people involved. But, I mean, he's been in some things, and I don't know if either of you are familiar with him, but uh, I wanted to do the IMDb game with Warren Cole. Any ideas? Warren Cole. Uh, not by name, but, like, looking at his face, he kind of looks like uh, maybe he transitioned into, like, a CW actor or a CW-type actor. <laughs> That's actually a really good pull. He does. He, he looks like he's moved. He, he probably has more TV credits than film. How about that? Yes, you're right there. There's a lot more TV um, and some video game work as well. The four on his IMDb known for are the TV show Shades of Blue, in which he was uh, 35 episodes of that show, and then six episodes of The Following, the Kevin Bacon show. Oh, that was Bacon, yeah. Yep, yep. 12 episodes of Common Law and two episodes of White Collar. So those are his four. Oh, White Collar was supposed to be good. I haven't seen, I haven't really seen any of those. I've watched a couple of episodes of the following, but clearly not the six that Cole was in. Well, most recently, uh, he has been in 11 episodes of Yellow Jackets. Oh, I haven't watched that either. Yeah. So, well, here's one that you did watch. He was in seven episodes of 24. Yeah. I watched all of that. It's just been a little while, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's Warren Cole. And uh, that takes us to the end of the minute. We see the uh, night shot of the helicarrier flying through the sky. And that is the end. So let's wrap it up for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 57. So, Bubba Wheat, tell everybody about what you're up to and where they can find it. The project that I'm working on the most right now is my main podcast. It's Time to Rewind. I uh, break down time loop movies and TV shows one scene at a time, typically uh, with the, the time loops, it's one loop at a time. Uh, the We are, I, I believe we're in the middle of Memento right now, which, you know, it's not exactly a time loop movie, but it's close enough for me. I, I kind of explain it that uh, the, the character Leonard is kind of in his own personal time loop, or like everybody is kind of in a, a town loop in their own, like the world is in a time loop and he's the one that keeps resetting every 10 to 15 minutes. And we're tackling that uh, one scene at a time for 45 episodes. Uh, they come out every Monday and Thursday and we're going in film order rather than chronological. So every Monday is the color scene and every Thursday is the black and white scene. And uh, we, uh, yeah, we're, we guessed on that. It's a lot of fun. We had some really fun conversations about some incredibly short scenes. <laughs> Very short. <laughs> Very short. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll have well, a lot of the a lot of the black and white scenes that are less than a minute. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I think you did. Uh, I think we talked about how you got. I think the two shortest black and white scenes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think one was eleven seconds. Mm. So very, very. But what we talk, what we talk about? We took that eleven seconds for an hour and a half, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, memory serves, something like that. Hour and a half, two hours, whatever. It was something like long. that. 
Yeah. But we'll have the links in the show notes. You can check it out there. Remember, if you don't see the show notes in your podcatcher, just go to our website, marvelmovieminute.com, and you can find it all there as well. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. So, Pete, thanks as always. Oh, Andy, I wonder if our meet-cute scientists will discover why birds suddenly appear every time they are near and then suddenly disappear in a white-hot ball of fire. (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>